0: Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. That screeching noise that you can hear, that's the sound of a chopper. And as it gets closer, it starts to shoot. It's aiming at Islamist militants who have surrounded and besieged a hotel. It's trying desperately to beat them back as more than 200 civilians are trapped inside. To so the person who filmed this video on his phone, a man called Wesley, this chopper and that sound, brings with it the promise of survival.
3: I think those guys will run from that.
0: They'd been waiting for nearly three days for someone, anyone, to rescue oh, those, them.
3: Uh, big choppers coming. Yeah.
0: And here, now, finally, someone is coming for them. Or so they think.
1: What's wrong? I'll
0: leave uh,
4: we, yeah. we suddenly realised we're completely alone and no one's coming to fetch feature.
5: And I just wrote him a message, and I just said like, I love you, I love you, I love you, you can do this. It's
3: like a nightmare that you're stuck in, that this just cannot
5: be real.
4: Feeling scared, waiting for the rescue
5: that never came. They were abandoned, and that makes me so fucking angry.
0: I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to Left to Die, the Siege of the Amarula Hotel. A story of broken promises and of what happened to the men, women and children who were abandoned inside. When the attack on Palmer happened in March of this year, 2021, it was covered by the international press, but it didn't get a huge amount of attention. So when I first interviewed the two men at the heart of this story, who you're going to meet in a moment, I didn't really know what to expect. I knew that there'd been an attack. I knew a little bit about the insurgency. But I came out of the interview pale and blotchy from tears and a bit broken. I'm so sorry, Wesley. I said frantically to my colleagues, who must have thought that I'd gone a bit mad, that this story was extraordinary. I set out to try and understand what had happened. I spoke to more than 20 people, contractors, aid workers, local residents, security experts, eyewitnesses. And the story that's emerged is of a $20 billion promise about corruption and extremism and how they feed off each other. It's about three men. Nick. Wesley, and Wesley's brother, Adrian. It's about how they and thousands of Mozambican civilians were abandoned. So first, let me introduce you to these guys properly. Nick Alexander...
4: Okay. Are you guys recording video as well, or is it just audio?
0: And Wesley now.
4: I'm shy to say what I had for breakfast.
3: <laughs>
0: they were once competitors in the construction industry, and now they're friends. They're bonded by what they went through in March. And on a humid afternoon, me in London, Nick and Wes on a patchy internet connection from South Africa, we started, of course, at the beginning.
3: I mean, it's a a typical little town in Mozambique. It is still,
4: you know, it was very remote.
0: Nick and Wes were in the town of Palma in the northern province of Mozambique, up near the Tanzanian border.
3: You know, when we first started driving up from Pemba to Palma, and some of the route that uh, we would go through, a lot of those villagers had never seen white people before in their lives.
4: Yeah, up, up until recently, there wasn't even a tar road in Palma. You know, there was still wildlife there until recently.
0: These guys, they build things. And thanks to a huge discovery, there was suddenly a hell of a lot of building going on in Parma because a decade ago, several giant gas fields were found off the coast of northern Mozambique. One of the largest gas deposits ever found in Africa, in fact, leading to a $60 billion series of projects to extract the gas, including a $20 billion site now led by a French oil and gas company called Total. Suddenly, this poor remote region was the center of attention, and international headlines were asking, is Mozambique the world's next energy superpower? The tranquil bay of Pemba in northern Mozambique is undergoing a rapid transformation. It may not look like it, but Mozambique is one of the world's new energy hotspots. But there was a catch, and it was a big one. Since 2017, there had been attacks on towns and villages in the region where the gas was found. Attacks by a terrorist group called Al-Shabaab, or the Youth. But they're not linked to the group that you might have heard of before.
2: For three years, people living in parts of northern Mozambique have lived with violence, death and destruction. Since then, the fighters have stepped up the violence, seizing important towns and targeting the
4: military. Territories that the armed groups now control are inching closer and closer towards
1: those gas facilities. The violence has killed more than 1,500 people and displaced over 600,000.
0: They had attacked towns, beheaded civilians, abducted young girls, and by December 2020, rumours were swirling that al-Shabaab were coming for Parma, this town of 70,000 people now bustling with foreign contractors there to work on the gas project. So Total, the French energy giant leading on the billion-dollar gas project in Parma, suspended its operations. It was just too dangerous to work. Nick and Wes evacuated... But in the end, nothing significant actually materialised. And so slowly, this year, after that first scare, the contractors started to go back to Palmer. And on the morning of Wednesday, the 24th of March, Total issued a press release and said that work would now resume on the gas project. That afternoon, Wes was sitting with his brother and his dad and other members of his team in the canteen in their compound in the town. They had been putting up accommodation and infrastructure for gas workers, mostly prefab buildings, these simple metal constructions with green corrugated iron roofs, but hundreds of them.
3: One of our guys, a local guy from Pemba, uh, got a phone call from his uncle, who's in the military. He came running into the the camp and said, guys, um, they're attacking Palmer." So we said, okay, uh, are you certain? You you know, like Nick said, there's so many rumors you don't know. And he said 100% it's from his uncle. They're attacking Palmer.
0: In another part of the construction site in Palmer, Nick was sitting in his office when a local guy from his team came in.
4: The guys came into the office again and said, no, this this is serious. We need to leave right now.
0: At around three o'clock, it happened. Al-Shabaab attacked Palmer. They shut off the main routes in and out of the area and they shot indiscriminately. The town was in panic. A local street vendor called Asan described how the police rushed in and told them to evacuate.
3: My sister got home from school and she told us that we got that information from her. So when she said that the situation wasn't good each one of us got ready. But we did think it was a lie, because every day we hear that the situation isn't good. It wasn't true, but now suddenly it was true. We saw the police and they were saying, go, 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 go. They were telling us to leave the neighborhood. I was certain of it. I saw two military men leaving downtown and heading towards where the terrorists were.
0: Both Wes and Nick, in charge of around 65 people between them, suddenly had to move and move quick. And let me just draw you a map here. We're on the Afungi Peninsula, just below the border with Tanzania on the Indian Ocean. And everything that we're talking about here is sort of clustered together. The town of Parma is right on the coast. And the Total Gas Compound, which was being built for thousands of workers, is about six kilometers to the south as the crow flies. The Amarula Hotel, where many of the foreign contractors had been staying, that was just a kilometer north of the town. And that's where Nick headed straight away.
4: We just drove as quick as we could. There was people running from the west into town and there was people running through town towards the beach. We just got into into Amarula, and the shooting started around the hotel.
0: Wes and his team, they told their staff to make their way home immediately and then they decided to drive north up to the Tanzanian border. But very quickly, they realised that this was a mistake.
3: As we came out of our camp... There at the corner, across the road is the Amarula, left is Palmer. We couldn't go left because there was a whole lot of people walking from Palmer town towards us. and uh, they said, no, we can't go that way. So we decided to go right uh, towards um Tanzanian border, and that's when we first got shot at, and probably ten shots. Ba, 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 ba. My brother was driving, he stopped. And he just uh, did a huge donut, as we call it, turned around, and um, everyone was just shouting at him, Drive, drive, drive. The guys are shouting, Go to the Amarula, go to the Amarula.
0: And let me just make it clear, because I think some of us, me included, have a stereotype about South African contractors working in far flung bits of the continent. Where's a Nick? They're construction experts. They build houses and offices. Wes's ambition for his company, Cube Modular, is to solve the housing crisis across Africa. Neither of them had ever been in a conflict zone before or had they been shot at. And it was fleeing this sudden onslaught of violence that on Wednesday afternoon, Nick and Wes, Wes's dad and his brother and around 100 other locals came together to take shelter in the Amarula. From there, they could hear the gunfire, the mortar shells, the bombardment of the town. But they figured it wouldn't be long before the situation was brought under control. After all, the military was there, and Total too, and there was a lot of money riding on the gas project going ahead. Surely they would have a plan. They know now, they told me, just how naive that was. By Wednesday afternoon, hundreds of other people fleeing the attack in the town were coming to the gates, begging to be let in. In the town, there had been beheadings, and insurgents had been spotted with serious weapons, carrying AK-47, automatic rifles, RPD and PKM machine guns and heavy mortars. And although they were nervous of being overrun, the hotel and the security guards allowed more people, mostly local women and children, to come in to safety. Asan, the local street vendor, was one of them.
3: We could hear those guys shooting. They were shooting. It was them. The second day, they actually got to the gates and they started banging. The security men were there. They were there listening to the voices of the terrorists. They were surrounding us all.
0: And though it was guarded by high walls and metal gates at the front the back of the hotel was exposed. And the hotel, it's important to say, it wasn't like one big building. It was lots of tiny rooms spread out over gardens with a big helipad at the back. It was really open to attack. Another Mozambican man that we spoke to who asked to remain anonymous because of just how traumatised he is and whose testimony here is being read by an actor, spoke of just how vulnerable they were.
3: I was scared as I felt Amarula had no security. We couldn't protect ourselves. We couldn't believe that no one would get in. Amarula is a simple hotel, nothing special.
0: By late on Wednesday, around 200 people were inside the hotel, including around 20 foreigners. In Wes's videos, you can see them all outside, sometimes gathering in groups, sometimes alone. And with no phone signal, the people who were lucky enough to still have their phones, mostly the foreign contractors, were reliant on the hotel's patchy satellite internet to tell their families that they were safe. This is Tori, Nick's partner, who was in England as this was all unfolding. I
5: close by and I was like, what, are you OK? What's going on? I said, you're frightening me. He said, bringing our guys to Amarula as well. I'll let you know what's happening. And I said to him, please, I love you. love you. we we'll have our guys in here. And I said, is there a lot of security? Then he said, no, not at Amarula. It's just unarmed. And I said, to him, I need you safe. Keep me posted. And then about an hour later, he said, choppers are on the way. So I said, security or evacuation? He said, security. And I was like, Nicholas. Then he tried to call me on a sat phone. So at least I had a number that I could every now and then try and get hold of him. He said, we've been eating in the dark, but people are moving back to their rooms. He said, the choppers never arrived.
0: The civilians were hiding between the buildings to avoid being hit by stray bullets. Wes shared a load of videos with me that he shot during the siege, and one video in particular struck me. Mm. Everyone is lying on their stomachs on the floor of the hotel bar, this straw roof above them. Every so often, you can hear the sound of mortar shells landing, and you can see the people in the video flinching. Adrian, Wes's brother, looks directly at the camera and his eyes are wide.
3: Dad, lot on.
0: It's a moment that you can see the terror. You can feel how close the militants are.
3: That's when a hell of a lot of shooting started. Hey, Nick? I mean, it just... You're... Know, uh, it's hard to even explain, just thousands of gunshots. And uh, the mortars were already going off at that stage, yeah?
4: I think so. Uh, they intensified in the, in the evening, but there were shots around the hotel and then a lot of shooting in town.
3: So people were all in between the, the houses and the trees. People were using the, the big boobab trees as shelter for gunfire. And there was, yeah, I remember now, there was a lot of mortars going off. And it didn't feel that far away from us. Uh, you know, it felt a couple of hundred meters, if that. A hundred meters. So really at that stage, we thought, shit, now all of a sudden it becomes real. And it's not just two insurgents like we thought.
4: On Wednesday, the town was just getting hammered all night. I mean, it, it, like Wesley said, an unbelievable amount of, you know, RPGs, and we we heard mortars as well, and just automatic gunfire went on the whole night. I mean, it was very uh, it was very unsettling. We were, you know, you know, trying to get to sleep, or trying to get some sleep, but it, yeah. By then, we were, you know, we were scared. I mean, it, and we felt. You know, vulnerable. There, we did. we had no security. Really, there was no armed security for us. Um, we just had the hotel walls around us.
0: By Thursday, the numbers inside the hotel had grown to over 200. Wes and Nick were awake in the early hours at around 4 or 5am and they were struggling to sleep. But they figured the military would be there soon. And this is really where each step of this story just seems to get worse and worse. Because what they didn't know, or at least they didn't fully understand at that time, was that the militants were busy blocking the roads. Better armed and organized than the army itself, they had made the chance of any land rescue much too dangerous. So, to get out, they were going to need choppers. And the military did have helicopters, some of which could carry dozens of people. But they weren't coming. By now, they'd been shot at and had been pulled out.
4: There was a spotter plane that flew over. I think they were working for DAG or working with DAG, but the spotter plane came over. And I mean, they just shot the hell at this thing. Um, They they didn't hit it, but it just gave us an idea of how close these guys were. They were literally just behind the perimeter wall to the hotel shooting at this plane.
0: That name, DAG, they're the Dyke Advisory Group, and you're going to hear a lot more about them. These guys, a South African security force who you and I would call mercenaries... ...had been hired by the Mozambican Ministry of the Interior a year earlier... ...as the insurgency had intensified to help the small and poorly equipped army. And so when the attack began, Dag kicked into action... ...flying in to help mount a defence from the air.
4: Terrified civilians ran for cover in any compound they could find. The private security company Dag flew helicopters in... ...to try and ferry them out to safety. Just a few at a time, while the insurgents attacked and killed.
0: As this was unfolding above them, the people inside were desperately trying to piece together a plan.
4: You know, probably there was, I don't know, seven or eight expats plus the hotel manager trying to come up with a plan, but also just to get someone who as a central point of contact to put a plan together.
0: But there was a problem. Helicopters flying in, braving gunfire from the insurgents, would need fuel close by so they could keep going in and out. But many people claim that as an air rescue mission began by the Dyke Advisory Group by DAG, Total refused to give them fuel from their complex nearby.
3: And they didn't have any fuel at Vermezi, so they were waiting for fuel to come from Pemba because Total wouldn't uh, give them any fuel.
0: Why was that? Do you know why?
3: I'd
4: heard differently that there had been helped with fuel, but I, I mean, I can see from Total's perspective, you know, how difficult that might be for, from a PR perspective as to who they, who they assisting, but, you know, at that stage, we weren't thinking like that. I mean, we just wanted to be rescued. I didn't care, you know, who came and fetched us. And uh, I don't think anybody else should have cared either, but at that stage, it was already, you know, humanitarian crisis
0: The longer they're stuck inside, the more aggressive the militants all around them are becoming. Assan inside the hotel too, describes how the insurgents started banging on the gates, how he hid under a container with other locals and foreign contractors. He describes how a helicopter came and started shooting and throwing grenades.
4: You know, if it wasn't for DAG, we would have been overrun on on Thursday um, without that.
0: Dag helicopters began to land on the helipad just behind the hotel, lifting people out.
4: But during the course of the day, there were a couple of choppers that were able to lift people out. I mean, the first chopper took the administrator and, and his family.
0: So he, he was a, a local...
3: He was the Palmer administrator. So so the government official of, like the, if you want to call it the mayor of the town. Like the mayor, yeah.
0: He was the first to go.
4: Yep. Him and his family. He didn't waste any time. So I think thereafter, there was probably two more chopper lifts.
3: Yeah, it, but it happened in quick succession. So we, we weren't a part of that. No, I mean, we weren't aware. Remember at that stage, they were discussing, okay, uh, the choppers are coming. And the first people that we're going to send is people with medical issues and women and children.
0: And who was, who was communicating that to uh, you?
4: That was the, the hotel manager. Yeah.
0: And he was talking to who?
3: Well, first of all, he said to us that the first people that must go is the owners of the company or the managers, country managers. And um, they said, no, they're not leaving their people behind.
0: The first person to be rescued from the hotel was the Palmer administrator with his family. And when I first heard this, I did a double take. He got out before children... But the more people I spoke to, the more it started to make sense. A lot of the reporting at the time of the attack suggested that the militants had besieged the hotel because they wanted to kill foreign contractors. These were the targets. But multiple people, including one source who had direct knowledge of the security response, told me that actually wasn't true. The insurgents were focused on the local politician. That's why they were there. One of the Mozambicans inside the hotel also said this. He said that the administrator could be considered a trophy, a way for the terrorist to send a message. And so Dag received a request from the army. Go and get him out of there. This was an attempt at de-escalation and an attempt to save face. Nick and Wes and everyone else, they assumed that they'd be rescued soon after.
5: All right.
3: So there's... um.
0: You can hear in this video, Wes speaking, telling two other people that DAG are coming for them all.
3: they still got the, the armoured vehicle here for 10 people who's injured or medically, got medical conditions, and maybe women and children.
0: And they do. Hunt. 24 people were picked up by the mercenaries on Thursday.
4: Thursday, we were still thinking, you know, someone out there was making a plan and that our rescue was, was being organised. I mean, that subsequently turned out to be, I mean, no one was organising anything. Everyone was very, very afraid. But, you know, there was a sense of we're in this together and that we're going to get out together.
0: It's now Friday, the 26th of March, day three.
4: Yeah, I think it really grew by Friday, you know. Yeah, Friday was
3: bad.
0: Suddenly, the security guards tell everyone to move away from the gates. And you'll have a good sense now of Nick and Wes. Though they're very different characters with very different ways of talking about what happened, they share a forensic memory of what happened. They remember chilling details of this, just like a sea of horror moving closer and closer towards them.
3: They said, everybody get down to the corner of the property. There was a whole bunch of people standing out the front and asking to come in. And when he asked them to show their hands, they were standing behind a line of women. He asked them to step back and show their hands. Um, They wouldn't do that. So they were obviously hiding guns behind the women. So he wouldn't let them in. And that's when he came and told everybody to get down and go down to the one corner where we lay down. But,
0: so the insurgents were trying to trick their way into the hotel.
3: Yeah, that's it. That was where all of us, expats, the locals, everybody, we got them there and we told everybody just to keep dead quiet. The insurgents are right around us. That was scary. That was, that was super scary. At this stage, I mean, this is probably at nine o'clock in the morning. Because huh? they told us the choppers were going to come early in the morning. So we had been down there since about 7 in the morning. By 9 o'clock, we had people sitting further uh, up the, the little pathway where all the people we were hiding and lying down. We had some people there sitting and watching to make sure that no insurgents jumped over the, the weak area at the back by the helipad and came running towards us. Me and my brother were lying there and, and we were so scared at that stage he said to me he's like if there's 20 insurgents there's 200 of us and they come down this pathway all we do we get everybody up and we just run and attack and try and rugby tackle them that was that was at that point You can imagine what's going through your mind. You're thinking, that's it. I'm willing to get up, run towards these guys, and just, if we're going to go, we're going to go, but we're not going to get slaughtered the way they want to.
0: You heard that right. Civilians resorting to rugby tackling armed insurgents. I mean, there are moments, and there are plenty more of them to come, when the story, the situation just descends into absurdity. Imagine that being your last resort. Meanwhile, Nick, who had been huddling with the rest of his team, was speaking to the hotel manager, Timothy Roberts, who was known to everyone there as Robbie.
4: I started working in March
3: 2019. I started working at Amrullah Palma Hotel as a general manager and operations manager. Well, just remember, we are in the hospitality business, so, you know, we can only do as much as we can. We're not a um, a
0: militant organisation. Robbie had been overseeing the rescue attempts. But more than that, he'd been the focal point for everyone at the hotel, helping to organise, communicating with the outside world.
3: Just remember, they were, we I we we, um,
4: asked WFP, I asked the UN, I asked phoned around, we asked the embassies, but it was a Friday and a Thursday. But on Thursday, I, I kept on pushing the owner uh,
3: to try and get us a evacuation flight.
0: He was the one that people thought was talking to Dag. People
3: think they're doing the best. All of us, we think we need to do the best we can, but something can happen. Mm-hmm. And therefore, everybody was concerned for their lives because the shooting was right there. The surgeons were right there. Yeah. What do I do?
4: So Robbie said to us that, you know, there's this option, that they can only fetch the expats. And we declined on that. So we said, forget it. Then there was no plan at all. So and I don't know if his plan because they the hotel had a good relationship, as I said, with Everett Aviation. So what we thought was, and I, you know, this is, this is why we had so little information. What we thought he'd planned was the DAG choppers were providing cover and then the Everett choppers would land um, and airlift us.
0: After two days of relentless gunfire, Nick and the other contractors had been offered a safe route with a place on a chopper. But they were adamant, they told me. The children, the women, the vulnerable, they had to be rescued before the foreign contractors. No one would be leaving unless they could all leave. And I'm being specific about this because who was rescued and how that was decided is now at the heart of a fierce battle between mercenaries, survivors and a leading human rights organization. And it relates directly to what happened next, a moment which changed everything. And just on that, sorry to to stop you, but those three helicopters that came on Friday, and it was made clear to you that you as expats could go if you wanted to, and you said that absolutely not, we're staying, we'll be the last to leave. Who did end up leaving on those helicopters then?
4: Well, nobody until the last, well, the one helicopter was the hotel manager and a few of his staff who were, he took them and the two dogs. It was at that point we realised, you know, we've been abandoned.
0: In part two, the story of a terrifying escape and how a corruption scandal fueled a deadly insurgency.
3: Then they left us. So, shit, now what? And Adrian then said, guys, we cannot be sitting ducks like this. They told us, listen, there's a a car outside, parked out just outside the gate, and there's a um, AK-47 inside the back of the car. And that was it. Adrian thought, listen, that's our only protection. We need that. If we have that, at least we, we can be safe. So they found someone had already pulled out uh, two sets of uh, helmets and World Food Program bulletproof vests. He put the helmet and the bulletproof vest on, and that was that he didn't, no one even asked him. He just decided, we need that gun, I'm going to go get it.
0: Thanks for listening. This story was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings, produced by Matt Russell, with additional reporting and fact-checking by Claudia Williams. Sound design is by Carla Patella, a podcast by Tortoise Studios. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you could consider becoming a member of the newsroom that I work in. It's called Tortoise, and our members help shape the stories that we tell. To find out more, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. And if you'd like, you can sign up with my code BASHA50. That's basia I A five zero. Thank you for listening. Stay with us for episode two. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High
2: quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.